Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is uh, Nils O. I'm a researcher at the Technical University of Denmark, where I do my research on structural optimization. So I guess structural optimization, that's a really broad, broad field of research. So basically you could say that, that what I want to do is I want to design both devices that can be used to help benefit the world, but also look for solutions that uh, improves functionality of already existing products or determine devices that can function in ways that you have never imagined before. And basically all with the aim of, of doing something that improves, improves our impact on the world, reducing material usage, getting better energy efficiency and all these things. So mm. that's the core of what I want to do and what I try to do. I think morphology computation or optology optimization is the core uh, for our work in soft robotics and how we can design soft robotics that could be efficient in energy and also can have interesting deformation. So before going to that, I'm curious to ask you as a kid, do you have any memories where you're interested in science and technology in your childhood? Yes. So I'm from Denmark, so it's really natural mm -hmm. that I started playing with Legos at a really young age. Yeah. And uh, so this is some years ago, not that many, but still quite a few. And when I was young, it was all about Lego Technics. So I was building cars and, and helicopters and all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, moving on to doing small, small robots that mimic stuff I saw in movies. So building X-Wing fighters from, from Star Wars mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I guess it's kind of the, the base story of, of many engineers. Started playing with Legos and then it evolved to something else. So maybe the first question comes to a student can ask you about what this topology and shape is. How you define the topology and the shape of a robot or material? If you can tell us about what the definition of topology and shape. Well, I think it's the easiest thing is to start one step before that, actually. So within structural optimization, we operate with three distinct classes. The first being size optimization. So you already have a design with a fixed topology. I mean, the layout is given and you simply change the size of each member to improve the performance of something. So this of course requires that you already know how a functional component should look before you can start. So moving one step further from that is shape optimization. So again, we fix the topology. We again have a good idea of how the, how the design should look to operate in a given way. But now we allow the design to change, meaning that if you had a cylindrical rod before, it can now turn into an hourglass-shaped rod, which could, if, if everything is working as it's supposed, improve the performance. But again, it requires that you have knowledge about the, the, the design layout that gives you a certain performance. Mm -hmm. Topology optimization is the, you could, I think one of my old supervisors called it the art of where to place the holes. So here you don't start with any design. You don't only start with a problem definition, meaning if you think, yeah, it could be anything, but if you want to design a hanger, you have a wall where you want to attach some material to, and you have some loaded area somewhere in space. Mm 
you then want to figure out what is the, for example, the stiffest construction you can make there. And here in mm -hmm. topology optimization, the question is every point in space, so in a continuous setting, you want to know should there be material or should there not be material. So you can think of yeah. this in 2D as you make a, a pixel picture of what you want, a bitmap, and then each pixel in this image is then asked whether or not it wants to be material. And then through an iterative process, which always ends in nice movies, you can see a structure emerging. And that could be comprised of holes in places you would never have thought of them, and uh, connecting arms in, again, ways you could not have imagined mm -hmm. yourself. And then the topology will simply come out. So to wrap it all around, meaning that you use topology optimization to get ideas about constructions or structures. Once you have them, you can then actually take that result and do further shape or size optimization on it to, in, to ensure that uh, both production requirements are met and also that the, the functionality is, uh, or you can get mm -hmm. it back to a CAD system and model the functionality there. That's wonderful. And I would like to stop again in this point because you mentioned, I think, two important aspects. The first one about understanding what you want to design. Do you think maybe modeling um, plays a significant role how you can uh, design a certain system based on understanding the physics of the material uh, or maybe also the other side, how you can get inspiration to design? So how you can combine both of them in getting a certain topology or can be make a guess. And I think in your work, you, you start about making guesses firstly, and then you can um, make sure what, what, what truth could be significant for your solving the problem or the desired design. At which level as, as well, because uh, if you want to design complex material for some robotics, mm -hmm. maybe I don't know how, how you can figure out these parameters that could be really significant in the topology optimization. I think that's also challenging how you can figure out what could be significant parameter of the morphology as well that could be significant in, uh, in designing the, the topology. Well, so, I mean, basically when you start doing optimization, being a, a material design problem or a structural design problem, you, you are bound by the physics that you're modeling. And more importantly, you are very much restricted by the quality of the numerical model you have set up. This basically means, and this is actually one of the shortcomings with these design methods, but it means that if there are any flaws in your physical model, I mean, you might be able to have a very nice working model that can capture physics of pre-existing features, pre-existing structures. But if you allow an optimization algorithm to start changing the size and the shape, if there is some problem in your numerical model that allows it to cheat physics, it will do so. And this is, I would, I would call this one of the shortcomings with, our, with the methods that I'm working with, because this means that you really need to know what you're doing before you, or before you can get meaningful results. I mean, basically, when you, when you have a numerical model that is supposed to be able to predict the real world, it might be able to predict it, but it might also be able to do, give you incorrect answers. And an optimization algorithm will always be able to find that and basically use it against you to arrive at non-physics. So, so with respect to the modeling, you really need to know what's going on before you start doing any optimization. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And maybe the, maybe the question here, I think, related. Uh, I think in soft robotics field, we have this question about the morphological computation and how we can uh, understand the morphology uh, correctly and how they can play a significant role in designing controller technique to control the shape to deform in a certain way. 
So if you can tell us about morphological computation, what are the challenges? Do you still we, we understand how the morphology is so important in design uh, of robotics? Well, the, there are several challenges. I mean, first of all, in soft robotics, you often want very large displacements. So mm -hmm. the, the first challenge is that you need to incorporate a, a, a whole variety of nonlinear effects. I mean, you need to be able to, to take into account buckling, for example, which means that you will have bifurcations in your solution space. So strong nonlinearities that could render, depending on your numerical scheme, your optimization setup has been kind of non-deterministic, meaning that it will not end in the same place, even though if you start the same place. So that's one thing you could, you, you have to be very, very careful about. And the other thing is you often, I mean, not often, but sometimes you require it to be snap-through effects, right? Like a von Mises beam. So you could think of if you want to do a soft robotics or, well, soft hard robotics of an airfoil where you want some positions, like a flat positions in a compliant mechanism, you, you, I mean, the modeling you need to do just to get that right is really complicated. So there are, there are luckily, I would say, many challenges left with respect to just modeling the physics and writing up or developing the optimization mm -hmm. formalisms that you need. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm curious to ask you, I think, uh, and that's a question we have in the podcast as well, um, how we can access the beneficial nonlinearities of the material itself and geometric structure to get interesting information. And I think when we look to the nature, for example, the famous experiment of the dead fish that swim against the, the vortices of the water, that's an example mm -hmm. that how the morphology of the creature we have in nature are designed to, uh, to adapt to the environment or navigate in their uh, environment. And that's very inspiring. I don't know how you look for that, how we can really access the, the beneficial nonlinearities in a structure. Or do you have an idea how we can do that? Yes, and, and I think that it, to some extent, some people are already doing it. But I mean, there's, I mean, there's a problem taking it to the large scale. I mean, so you can actually model the whole thing. So basically, if you want to be able to model that, let's take the, the fish, for example. If you want to be able to model this accurately, you, re you need, first of all, a really complex numerical model coupling both fluids and solids under the assumption of large strains, large deformations. And you need to do it in the time domain. So this means just modeling this without looking into optimization, there's a huge uh, computational load. And when you then want to put optimization on top of this, then it becomes even more expensive. And this is this is one of the, not one of this is probably the key thing that I'm working on is to how to make these methods much faster, how to develop modeling tools that are fast enough such that it allows for, 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 mm. for large scale structural optimization. And that only becomes worse if you both have material nonlinearities and geometric nonlinearities. So that's, that's the yeah. challenge, but, uh, but I don't see it as something that's out of reach. I mean, it's something that can be done. It's just something complex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's interesting also. If you can tell us some more about how you can make it more faster, because I think that's the also interesting part, if you can give us detail about that. So, I mean, there's what we have been doing in the group that I'm working in the past 10 years or something is going to high performance computing. And we, have now, mm -hmm. we can now create models that run on tens of thousands of computers 
and can solve problems with uh, billions of unknowns. And we can basically, we can design static, I mean, big structures such as bridges and, and airfoils and the support structures of aircraft and all these kind of things, but under static assumption. So that's really nice, but not everybody has access to these huge computers. So where I see the real challenge and what we're working at now is how can we make sure that, or how can we adapt these methods for desktop computers, powerful desktop computers? Are there anything we can do to speed up computations? And I guess that one of the directions that we're looking into, which has, as I see it, has a, a quite big potential is to go into computer graphics. And, mm -hmm. and the thing, and basically you look at computer games. So, I, I mean, I, this might not sound like, like a physical science, but the thing is, I mean, we might, if we are able to let go a little bit of the accuracy in our numerical models, you can think of uh, methods like smooth particle dynamics, uh, yeah. stuff like this, where we know that there are issues with the conservation laws that we are trying to mimic, but we can get a solution that's pretty good, really fast. Then, then we are looking at how can we incorporate semi-accurate methods like this to speed up the computations. That would definitely be, or is definitely the way that, one of the ways we are looking at solving this issue right now. And then every now and then you have to do a rigorous analysis to make sure, again, that the optimizer is not taking benefit of faults or errors in the, in the underlying mathematical model. I think that's interesting. I think we had an episode about uh, a comparison, for example, between finite element uh, analysis and material bond method. And one of the <laughs> challenges, as you mentioned, uh, I think the computation costs uh, in maybe in both techniques. And sometimes we can use model order reduction to focus mm -hmm. on certain. I don't know. Do you think model order reduction could be uh, a reliable solution, or we have to look for other uh, techniques to reduce the computation, either in FEM or MBM, for example, material bond method? Thank you. It's part of the solution, model, model order reductions, and we are doing it very much as, as any, any time we can. But I also think there's a, I mean, that will only get you so far. I mean, there's also, there's, there's the, you, yeah. need, you need what you call it radically new ideas on how to do this. I mean, so mm -hmm. if, I mean, model order reductions that work, if you have a method that's already developed and working, then you can start doing something with that to reduce the, the, the space that you're searching for solutions in. But, but generally mm -hmm. speaking, I think that would, if you could come up with something completely new, I think the chances of really getting improvements would be much greater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would like to stop again about, because uh, I have been working on SUFA as well, but I think there's, I think, a limitation, and maybe that's a question student can ask, which tool I have to use, which technique I have to pursue? And for example, in SUFA, you can't uh, simulate viscoelastic material, which you have already high young models, and, and, mm -hmm. and that's a challenge as well. So I don't know if you can tell us about limitation. What is the usual limitation do you think about? We still have to simulate or optimize uh, smart material like viscoelastic material or hyperelastic material. If you can tell us more example about that. So, I mean, going into specifics about viscoelasticity, then there is the yeah. whole, I mean, the modeling problem with that is that you at every time step need to look through the entire time series that has just passed. Yeah. So that's very expensive if you go far into time. So one of the tricks that we do there is that we use approximate techniques such that we never look too far behind. So every time you want to do the convolution integral that, uh, or evaluate the convolution integral for the viscoelastic parameters, 
then you only look in a, a subset of previous timestamps. And that can, I mean, that just beats up your computations tremendously, especially if you combine it with model order reduction methods. Then you can get something, but you're still bound by, if, if you're doing a finite element model, you're still bound by the limitations that that's going to impose on you. Mm -hmm. And I think also you have been working in cutting as well, cutting scenario for the material. Can mm -hmm. you tell us some more about how, what is the challenge? Because we know, for example, in, in FEM, sometimes remission technique is not accurate. Sometimes you have instability and you might call a solution. And and in other slides, sometimes in material bone method, you can handle this large topology change. Mm -hmm. But you can tell us about what is uh, what what is motivation behind cut FEM and what are the challenges uh, in new project. Yeah, so, so cut finite elements or extended finite elements or virtual finite elements or all these methods where you are working on, a, I, mean, they, they, I mean, they're all similar, but the one that I really like is, so, so in order to get computations to run, you can do is to work without a, a real background mesh. So as you mm -hmm. say, remeshing is extremely expensive and some geometries you can hardly mesh without getting into really poor element quality. So the strength of the cut element methods that we work with is that they do not need, they are, the, first of all, they're stable, but they do not need any remeshing at any point, meaning you can work with a logical mesh. Every mesh cell is not represented in the standard, you know, like a hazard diagram or anything. You just need to figure out if some uh, augmented field, like a level set field, is cutting through this cell. And then the only thing, and again, this might sound simple, it's, of course, there's more to the story, but you basically only have to do smart integration at a local level. So this means fixed background mesh, very easy to get into a parallel framework. It's very easy to um, apply standard domain decomposition approaches. And uh, the, 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 the spatial integration and some a little bit of stabilization also means that if you have these very small cuts like you, you just said that if you have geometries where you have a wedge going into a domain, this can actually be captured quite efficiently. So, so the cut, the, the strength about the cut methods is that you can one, work on a fixed background mesh, two, you do not have to remesh, and three, you can get it into a parallel setting uh, and then do, then do pretty fast computations. The setbacks mm -hmm. of it is of course, that you do need to do these integrations on a local level and they can't can be rather complicated depending on how your geometry is cutting through a domain and also the stabilization terms that you need could also be something that you need to tweak so it's it's not necessarily a tool that works out of the box always yeah. and and do you think maybe we can merge maybe mesh and meshless space techniques for for simulation material cutting scenario do you think we can integrate techniques maybe so what does Africa mitigate the limitation I, I would hope so I mean I do not see anything uh, stopping it from combining for, for a possible combination of it but I, I mean if you're thinking about the material point method combined with a cut method yeah. I mean you could definitely do that but on the other hand when you have the the, the cut method you could basically do something similar either with a mesh. I mean, you don't have to stick to particles like in MPM, but you could do the same just with two disconnected meshes, non-conforming meshes where one is deforming largely and being mapped into the other. So I think there's a whole variety of approaches that you can pursue in this direction and people are doing that. But if, mm -hmm. if they're going to end up speeding up anything like orders of magnitude, 
I, 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 I'm, I'm simply not sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious to ask you maybe what is maybe area or direction of research in topology optimization you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment. Oh, I, I'm not sure if, if there's a place where people disagree here. I think everybody agrees that speed is of the essence. We need efficient methods to get to get uh, to get this out to the to the world. So I, I, as I'm maybe correct me if I didn't get the question correctly, but I don't think there's any disagreement on where we are supposed to go in the community. But you could say, and mm -hmm. this is probably for many engineering disciplines, that not too much effort is being being put on making this robust with respect to the user. I mean, I still I, I see if, if it's possible to make topology optimization approaches accessible by everybody. I mean, people without an engineering background and give them quality answers every time. I mean, that's that's uh, if we could get to there, then it would be really strong. And I don't see too much research on that. It's more on developing methods which are only accessible by other researchers and which requires people with PhDs to operate. I think that's kind of a limitation. I'm curious, I'm curious to ask you if uh, there is example of complex projects you have been working on for topology optimization. It was really interesting and complex to solve. Because I, we have a question from a student, how we can handle complex geometry? Sometimes there is maybe parameterization techniques so that you can uh, design the shape. But do you have any experience with complex topology optimization uh, project you have been working on? Was it challenging for you? Yes, I would, I would actually argue that all the projects that we're working on are exactly like that. Very complex. Yeah. And I mean, so, so there, are, there are several issues here. First of all, when we do our gigascale optimization um, uh, studies, we often get geometries out with so many details that it's simply impossible without manual inspection to convert it back into a standard CAD file. Yeah. So, so I, so, so maybe this is not exactly what the student had in mind, but this is my take on it. So I kind of have this view, not kind of, I actually have this view that the CAD systems, the spline-based, the NURBS-based stuff that was created back in the 80s and is still being used throughout the world is kind of losing uh, touch with where modeling capabilities is going. So what we are working with in order to handle complex geometries and very complicated layouts with covering multiple uh, scales, right, is implicit geometry representations. So instead of, I mean, this is also part of the motivation for our cut element approaches, actually, is because if we, instead of having an explicit geometry representation from, for example, splines or something similar, if we have it as, as, uh, as, as level set fields where we have one order or one dimensionality higher than what we're actually looking at and then cutting it somewhere, we can, with a very low amount of data, represent really complicated geometries. And yes, and, and one more note on that account. So we are not the only ones in structural optimization who are seeing the benefits of this. I mean, the whole, the whole revolution that has happened since 3D printing went ballistics in the mid zeros until now it's actually that more and more geometry or computational geometry companies are shooting up, which focus exactly on these implicit geometry representations. 
So I, I think that's definitely that's definitely the the enabler here. I mean, once yeah. this is part of the tool chain in in the manufacturing, then then it's going to be much easier to get it out to more people. Yeah, yeah. And maybe also we want to ask you about uh, the role of machine learning in topology optimization. There is technique like generative design or GAN as well. How you see the, the role of artificial intelligence or machine learning techniques on enhancing the, the optimization policy for the design process for the material? So, I mean, a lot of people within my field are looking into this now. And I think all of us have this tr uh, belief, which it is currently, that it can be used for something. But it's right now people are just looking for where it can be used. So it's, I mean, for, I mean, basically, I mean, if you go one step back and what we're doing in, in topology optimization is very similar to what goes on in many neural networks is that we'll use gradient information to improve the performance of some function. However, in topology optimization, we do this totally deterministic, meaning that we take a step in the right direction at every instance. However, the, this comes at a cost, right? And it requires, uh, and it requires, by the way, no knowledge about the complete design space. It only needs knowledge about a certain, uh, certain boundary conditions and certain loading. So what we have found so far, and many other research groups, is that if we try to replace the actual topology optimization process with artificial intelligence, we can get it to run really well and very fast on one problem. But if we then change the problem de de definition, I mean, move around the, the functionality of a compliant mechanism or move around the supports and the loads for this mechanism, then it fails miserably and cannot produce any useful results. So that's, of mm -hmm. course, it, 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 that sounds a bit sad. But again, I mean, this is how much research starts, right? You try something, it doesn't work, and then you figure out where to make it work. So where we are seeing benefits of artificial intelligence is now is actually once you have an optimized design is to mm -hmm. do upscaling from that so you can use it to to merge different designs into larger structures you can use it to extract based on a on a like a homogenization result you can use it to extract the underlying microstructure but locally so if you use it locally it seems to have very strong effects but to solve the global problems it's mm. it's still in its infancy, at least for the mechanical perspective. So yeah. there's a whole bunch of ch challenges here, which is good, of course. Yeah, mm? yeah. Mm. I agree with you. I think also um, I, I want to relate to the part you said that uh, about understanding the, your problem and the physics. And, and sometimes you deal with black box tools and you don't know. And that's why you are absolutely right about your point. It makes sense here why it couldn't work in such a scenario. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about, uh, I think that's very interesting part you have been doing about improving topology optimization intuition through games. And that was, I think, the motivation behind it that students can learn about uh, topology optimization and how it is important. If you can tell us about the project, how you came to this idea and why it's important for students to, to know about this project. Yeah. So the thing is that when you, when, you, when you see the solution to an optimization problem, found from topology optimization, you very often end up sitting thinking, whoa, that's, of course it has to look like that. But that's when you see the solution. If you only see the problem, 
just like speaking of artificial intelligence, if you just give it the problem, it can be very hard to come up with a solution. So the idea is that if, if we could pose the problems for not just students, also researchers, and preferably, I mean, high school, school students, so young, young students, if we could pose problems for them and make them realize that, I mean, this epiphany that you get once you see the solution to a complex question is actually hard to come by. We could train their intuition and then make them more appreciative of the tools that we are developing. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that it's simply just extremely, I mean, it's just fun to see how fast you can get somebody without mechanical understanding. I mean, basically the, the, in the games that we have that you can download for whatever mobile device that you, that you could think of, they, I mean, they basically give you the standard you know, reward. I mean, one, two or three stars or zero if you are really far from it. And when we give, have given these to classes and let them play with it, over a couple of hours and then done some statistics. I mean, this is a call all, all anonymously on how they, their progression or how progressing in the, their understanding of topology optimization. You can actually see that this compared to the artificial intelligence, I mean, the neural networks that we have been trying to train, the human, the human networks are really, really fast at getting the key features and understanding how to improve them. So I guess that's more or less why we did this. Yeah, I think it's a really brilliant uh, point. And uh, yeah, I think we need more like how we make science for all for students to think in this way. I think that's a really brilliant way, indeed. And mm -hmm. uh, and I also think one of the question I think in, in soft robotics field, and that's uh, the question also we have about the design, because I think the goal, what you mentioned about how you can be innovative in design and, and think uh, in, 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 in a critical way. And I think one of the issues in the soft robotics field that we don't have a design tool recipe. So if you wanted to do, I think, topology optimization, you you have a standard a standard design for the the robot you want to design. But I don't know if you think topology optimization maybe is underappreciated sometimes in uh, maybe in soft robotics community. For example, we don't have so much work in uh, topology optimization, morphology optimization of soft robot. Do you think that's that true or yes i think it's true but i wouldn't call it underappreciated i would i mean it's i think it's like this with many tools somebody needs to demonstrate its capabilities before it really becomes um, appreciated by the research community and actually going back to what i said before one of the main issues with topology optimization is that it's kind of it's it's kind of hard hard to access if you come from a non-mechanics background so mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's, I wouldn't put the blame on the, on anybody else, but those of us designing the methods. I mean, this is, as I started out saying, this is one of the key uh, research goals of what we're doing. We want these methods to be so easily accessible that everybody can see the benefit of using them and actually be able to use them and get useful results. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, they are right. You're right. But I think maybe we can ask a question here. What could be a solution from you guys? You, you are so smart and you're do, doing really great work in, uh, in topology optimization. And on the other side, what could be consequences of that we neglect? I, I'm not sure, but I, if you agree with that, I think that's a core point of designing a reproducible soft robot or robot in general. If we speak about soft robot here, so um, how we yes, can solve this problem? Well, I think, 
I think I think the only I mean the only solution to this is that people team up. I mean, it's, and it's basically combining all the stuff that we have been discussing so far. I mean, if you want to apply topology optimization to the design of soft robotics, you need experts from the soft com robotics community to work together with experts from structural optimization, because mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole. Uh, there's a whole, I mean, not just a lifetime, but there are several lifetimes worth of knowledge in modeling soft robotics and knowing about all the do's and the don'ts in that field, which would be too large a mountain for, for us in structural optimization to climb to get to the, mm -hmm. to the leading, uh, the cutting edge technologies. And the same you could say vice versa for the soft robotics people going into structural optimization. So I think the, the answer is quite simple to some extent. Basically, you need interdisciplinary work. You need people from one community to reach out to the other and find a suitable project. Then, I, then I'm quite confident that, that great things will happen. Mm -hmm. I think uh, this is really a serious point and um, maybe I can comment about that uh, based on other episodes. We had uh, Professor Laura Blomshine uh, and she, she said that sometimes we present uh, maybe presentry uh, soft robot just to have a, a fancy shape presented to camera and, and also pressure to publish. We want to publish something that could demonstrate certain locomotion or something and we mm -hmm. sometimes avoid the core point of how we can design reproducible uh, design through understanding how this morphology plays a significant role. Do you think that the pressure to publish as well sometimes makes us uh, go in this direction that we neglect this kind of communication between structural people from mechanical side with soft robotics uh, from the other side? Do you think that's also maybe a problem or? I mean, I think that goes for every every research direction you can think of. Everybody needs to be mm. effective and very productive, meaning that it's if you have the choice to go in a project where you can see a deadline approaching in a couple of months compared to starting up something novel where you cannot even see where the first publication might arrive, it's much safer to take the, the safe path and just do more of what you have already been doing and get another publication. Definitely. Yeah. But, but to this, I have no, I have no good uh, suggestions for on how to overturn this uh, mm -hmm. this development. Yeah, but I agree I completely. I, but, but maybe yeah. the answer is more simple. Actually, I, again, I mean, I often come back to young people. I mean, young people tend to have a more. They are not. I mean, if you're not locked in. I mean, I'm not. I'm not that old, but still, I do have obligations. But if you are young, that might be a much better place to start these collaborations. So while you are a soft robotic student, hook up with somebody doing structural optimization. And then when you become adult in the sense of research, getting into your PhDs, then you are actually already running in the right direction. So maybe that would be a good solution. So forget about the old people and, and make it happen with the young ones. Yeah, I would like to thank you for this answer. I think it's a very good answer, yeah. So maybe the traditional question also students ask about how we can close the gap between simulation and reality. What are the most significant elements that could enhance closing this gap? That's a good question. I'm not sure if there's only one answer to that. Actually, I think there are many answers. But you, you could also here you could also think that the, first of all, I mean, if you want to ensure that you are modeling 
the real world. And this is something we often talk about within our field. It's not enough to show from a numerical guy's perspective like me, it's not always enough to show that stuff works in a computer. You need to get it out and verify that it actually works in reality as expected. So that basically takes me to the same conclusion as before. So more interdisciplinary work between experimentalists and and uh, numerics or theor theoretical people. And and mm. I yeah, I think that would yeah. that would definitely be one di direction to go in. And then, but yeah, there's the whole philosophical side of it as well. I mean, one has to remember that most of the mathematical models we are using to predict the behavior and the response of materials and structures, they are just the best we have available. They are not truths. Mm -hmm. I mean, there could mm -hmm. be better mathematical models out there, which we don't know about. That's interesting. Do you think that what could be uh, from your experience or maybe how you imagine what could be much better that the te established technique you're working on. Do you have any idea about that? Well, well if no, not I, I don't have a, a closed form idea. I mean, I don't have the answer. But I mean, even I mean, one good thing is still, even though we keep hitting our head against the wall when we try to move into the artificial intelligence world, we still do it. Because I'm quite sure that once we figure out how we can use it, it's going to be a really strong tool. So I think so I definitely think that's one way of getting to to uh, to better simulation capabilities and going even more exotic. I mean, the potential of quantum computing, I mean, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, first we need the computers and not just the emulators, but uh, but but that's going to revolutionize everything. I mean, once people start work, learning how to work with that, I mean, I, I, I think we are going to be able to do things that are you cannot even think about as being possible today. Yeah. But now we are probably some years into the future. I think it's more safe to bet on artificial intelligence and combining that with existing methods right now. Yeah, right. So we're closing then a few questions left. The first one, where is there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved something wasn't expected or interesting to you. And the other side of the question as well, I'm curious to know if there's something in nature you look and you look the shape of the creature or something in nature is very fascinating to you. How is this typology like working like that of this creature? Okay, so starting from the end, so I find a lot of inspiration in nature. I mean, being the colors of butterfly wings with the nanostructures, I mean, the, I mean these blue butterflies, I mean, they're basically colored blue because they have small Christmas trees all over their wings. I mean, that is just yeah. fascinating. So, so trying, so looking at things like this in nature, and then trying to get an optimization algorithm to either produce something similar or even better. Mm. I mean, that's always interesting. But most often, what we see with respect to nature is that when we allow our optimization algorithms to run free, we get designs that are so complex that in order to understand them, we often look to, to, to nature to see if we can find similarities. So we did some work on aircraft wings some years ago. And when mm -hmm. we saw the result, it kind of just, it made you think of the bones in, in birds. And this is just, I mean, this is just amazing to see that our computer models can predict structures that evolution has spent millions and millions of years 
developing. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, what, what was the first part of the question? That was something with... Yeah, uh, I think this one, what you mentioned is very interesting as well. Um, was there any direction you thought would work out very well, but in Berkeley Brazil, something wasn't expected, was interesting. The solution and numerical solution was different uh, in reality. And I don't know if you have experience like that. We have one example of that, yeah. and that actually has to do with buckling. So uh, mm -hmm. together with a PhD student and a colleague some years ago, we did this uh, infill approach modeling thing, which means that not just designing a structure, but designing a hard shell with a soft infill. And we, mm -hmm. we actually designed this to become as stiff as possible. And what we saw was that when we allowed for, you know, like a 3D printer with whatever infill uh, density that you could think of. And what we got out of that was a very cheap numerical model. But unfortunately, the designs that we got out was not as stiff as we had hoped for. But when we looked at the design, we could see that all the members was becoming wider, meaning that their, uh, their, their bending stiffness had increased. So we didn't ask for it. We asked for stiffness. We lost a little in stiffness. But what we got was a 500% increase in buckling resistance without ever solving a nonlinear problem of any kind or a linearized buckling problem. So that was, that was kind of nice. What is the answer behind what does happen? Do you know why this happened? And it's because, I mean, if you want, yeah, so, so that, of course, once we had the results, it was, we, we sat down and we looked at it and tried to figure out what's going on. And the thing is that the second that you introduce a weaker material into a stiffness of maximization problem, you are going to lose stiffness. You simply cannot create a structure with holes that is stiffer than a solid structure. I mean, so whenever you see people putting in a lot of holes in your structure, like making a small microstructure, you're actually losing stiffness. But if you're looking at uh, the weight to uh, volume, then you can get larger structures, right? So you can think of it making like a honeycomb infill structure it's going to reduce the stiffness. But since you're using less material in a wider region of space, the buckling load, the global buckling load will increase. So it actually makes perfect sense. And it's kind of nice that you find these where you can, I mean, this is actually a good example of where you can really get a lot for not too much. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very important. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. indeed. So the Next question, how can we enable more inclusive culture around the competitive idea? We ask this question because we know that the funding, we know that we have limited funding and there's a, a huge competition in, in academia in general, I think, and especially in STEM field. How we can ensure this, into, be intellectually inclusive, that if you have different idea, you, you are maybe welcome or maybe have the opportunity to get grants or funding for your ideas. Do you think we are inclusive in the field uh, in general? Intellectually, I mean? From our perspective, how can we make it easier for other people to work with topology optimization? I think and maybe this actually also goes for any other research discipline. So I think the call is that right now in my field and in computational physics generally, a lot mm -hmm. of different methods are being proposed in papers that are not accessible by that many. Meaning that you have a small uh, group of very skilled researchers who are publishing for each other. 
So there are, as I see it, yeah. there, there are two easy cures for this. One is that whenever mm. you present a numerical model or numerical method in a journal paper, you need to make that method publicly available. Simply mm -hmm. release your code so other people can use it. Yeah. That would be that would be the best way of doing it. Or it would be that the review the review process of a new method included a reproduction step. I mean, have the authors actually pre presented their computational approach such that it can be easily reproduced. And the same goes for people doing experimental setups of whatever. I mean, how easy is it to actually go in and reproduce the results? I mean, yeah. because that is discouraging, right? If you if you first have to learn, I don't know how much theory just to get started, then you then it's not really motivating for anybody to do to get into yeah. new fields. So, do you think ego is important for this researcher? To some extent, but I would all. I mm -hmm. mean, I would I would say confidence is important because if you think you have a good idea and you tell it to other people and they might not see it as a good idea, you should not stop because you might be right. So confidence mm -hmm. is important. Ego, not so sure. But you also have to be uh, humble, right? I mean, you need to acknowledge when you need to talk to other people. I mean, some of the best work yeah. we have been doing or and I have been doing uh, comes out of collaborations with people who have expertises in areas where I do not. Mm -hmm. And if you have a too big yeah. ego, you might think you are able to, to do every, anything. And that's mm -hmm. mm, yeah. probably not the case. So. But confidence is definitely a good idea. Don't let anybody tell you that your idea is not good before you have tried it out yourself and solved it your own fingers and eyes and everything that it was or was not. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. And which book inspired you? Maybe we have read in this field or what's other field? Well, it wasn't a book, it was a person. Simply, so when I was an undergrad student, I took a yeah. course in uh, solving partial differential equations. And then there mm -hmm. was a, when we got to the last part of the course, we had a, mm -hmm. a hands-on where we started programming some of the stuff we had been doing on piece of, on, on paper before that. And for that, there was mm -hmm. a, a, a PhD student almost done with his PhD studies who came and presented on his research. And when I saw that, I think I was on my fourth semester at the university on my bachelor. When I saw that, I knew that I was going to do what he was doing. I think I was lucky, right? <laughs> so, but uh, that was simply, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was how that was how I was turned to this yeah. branch of, of research. Maybe what is the most important quality you have gained while being in academia? One quality you have to maintain. One quality you have to maintain. I would say accept that you don't know anything. Appreciate when people when you t when you learn from others. I mean this. I mean being in academia is really the chance of going to work every day and learning something new. And if you think you yeah. are the world champion in everything, you're not going to learn anything. So appreciate that you are surrounded by experts that can that can broaden your horizon and perspectives on the entire world. That's indeed the uh, best advice, yeah. And maybe um, I want to ask you lastly, what was the best advice was given to you 
with it personally or professionally and was life changing for you? never really thought about that if there's one single advice i think if there's one single advice that that really made a difference i think it was when my my now my my girlfriend at the time and now wife yeah. said that mm-hmm. i should start spending more time on my studies i mean that mm-hmm. was definitely a good idea not take it so so loose <laughs> so <laughs> so basically so i i think the heart, the the advice is very simple i mean talent mm-hmm. will get you somewhere but the only thing that will get you everywhere is hard work and more hard work. Exactly. Yeah. And do you have any final words to would like to say to Softbotics community? Not that I haven't said, but I'll happily repeat it. I mean, please reach out to people in yeah. in, in structural optimization. You can yeah. think of us as people who are looking at design problems. So if you have a design that's not working, you know how it was supposed to work. Find people in structure optimization and ask for collaborations. Yeah. Thanks a lot, professionals. It was really enjoyable and thoughtful discussion. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you as well.